Matthew chapter 6. We'll continue on the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 6. There are three specific things that Matthew 6 begins with. And they are all dealt with under the context of righteous deeds or righteous acts. These are not things that Christians are supposed to try to do. They are here in chapter 6 as what you would be expected to do. It begins with alms. God expects us to be givers because God is a giver. And is specifically to give to those that are needy, those that have needs, the poor. The alms is giving. And blessed are those who give to the poor. There's a much in the Bible about it. We already looked at a lot of that. But we're warned about our compassionate giving or our giving to the poor about how we do it. That God does not want us to give with the idea of being noticed and recognized for our giving so that we would get compliments or praise from people. And he said, now that's what the Pharisees do. They like to do it so that you recognize it and you go, whoa. And then you begin to praise them highly. And Jesus said, concerning their giving, that's the only reward they will have. It's in this life and it was you going, whoa, because there's none in heaven. Because that's not the way God wants us to give. And if you give the wrong way, then your giving, though you help somebody else, was no doubt in vain. And so he said, when you give, you're not to let your left hand know what your right hand doing, which is another way of saying it. Do it without people knowing it. Because, you know, your right hand, your left hand wouldn't have a clue about what the other one's doing as far as having minds of its own. But uh, it's just a way of God telling us that when you give, uh, do it in such a way that God sees it. God knows the motivation of your heart, why you gave, and uh, he'll reward you openly. Then tonight, as we started last week, the thing that the righteous will do is pray. I don't know how many thousand books or million sermons or billion sermons maybe down through history have been spoken of about prayer. And how many times when it comes to prayer that that such a a guilt that so many people have about not praying, that we know we should pray and yet if you break down your week some, sometimes, uh, you, you might be shocked. You hope nobody knows it, but you might find out that this week you prayed a total of three minutes. You prayed that, you know, for two or three times at a meal, and, and uh, you, you just didn't spend any time at all in prayer. I mean, you thought about a lot of things, but none of it was really communion with the Lord like God would have us to do. And prayer is not something that we're too too well known at as, as Christians. We're not excessive prayers. A lot of people pray very, very little. They hear a subject, they hear a sermon on prayer, and then they get convicted about not praying, and then they go home and get on a, a prayer thing and start praying every day, and they soon find out later on that you drifted back to where you were before. And it's, uh, it's really not a pattern in your life. It's not a manner of life that you have. It's just a conviction that you have that we ought to. And you probably don't know a lot of people who spend a lot of time in prayer. But on the other hand, knowing how long somebody prays is not what we should be about anyway. We're not to advertise our efforts in prayer or write a book on how many hours we prayed and how long you labored and travailed in prayer for something. Uh, the one who should know that is God. And we're warned in chapter 5, when you pray, he said, don't be as the hypocrites are, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and the corners of the street that they may be seen of men. He said, verily I say unto you, they have their reward. And I doubt very seriously if the person who prays for public approval had any effect on whoever he was praying for or about what he was praying for anyway. I mean, the prayer may be just a social thing. We do it at ball games. People do it in conventions and political rallies and uh, before this and before that. And it, it's, it doesn't really have a lot of meaning except it's the right thing to do, but people really don't believe anything's going to happen. And we spent last week talking about the prayer of faith because he said, verse 7, when you pray, don't use vain repetitions. Vain means useless. It could mean also useless and of no effect. 
It does you no good. A vain life is a, is a useless life as far as advancing God's kingdom. And God's kingdom is much of what the Sermon on the Mount is about. But a lot of people pray because they're expected to. I remember years back, I don't think I've ever shared this either. I get all kinds of news stories. After I got saved, uh, praying was what we did all the time. We got together with the preacher and the friends and we come up in front of the church at night and spend a lot of time just praying and, and interceding for people. And so the preacher one time voted me, elected, nominated me to be an elder in the church. All of my 28 or 29 years old and wanted me to be an elder in the church. One of the things that you have to be able to do in a Christian church, if you're an elder, you have to pray over the communion. We have communion each Sunday. You're either on this side where the, uh, where the bread is or on this side where the cup is. And it was required of elders that when they come up to give the communion trays to the deacons that they would pray over these things. Well, like I said last week, I never prayed out loud in front of anybody in my life. But once I got saved and got around friends, I, it became just a natural, normal thing to do. Well, let's, let's just pray about it. Let's just agree now and pray about this. And so I would do that out in public. So the, they nominated me to be an elder, I think, because I could pray out loud. And that's how I became a, a big-time elder in the Christian church, which I, wish, I think they wish I hadn't been an elder because I was on the board and, and I was a terrible at, at suggestions and voting. I wanted to buy a golf course once because we're just a public thing anyway. Why not get a golf course ahead of the church? And, and they closed the meeting over that that night. I wouldn't do that. I really wouldn't make such a suggestion today. I probably wouldn't do that, but that was how I felt in my frisky young years. When my hair was brown and uh, before I had any kind of maturity at all. But he said, don't use vain repetitions. Don't use, as some religions use chants. They think by their chanting. You remember the uh, American Indian, a lot of the dances they do are chants, and they keep repeating a certain mantra or some kind of a chant invoking the help from gods, which were demons. And uh, they didn't know any better. That's all they knew. They were raised like that. And then you got you know, the Catholics. My dad being a Catholic and my brother, they prayed the, you know, the Catholic rosary and, and those learned prayers we call praying by rote or by memory and learning. And they just repeat the words. They say the words over and over and over and over and over and over and over, and over again. It really didn't mean anything, but it was what you were supposed to do. Now, while they might have felt better about themselves for spending that kind of time in prayer in the church, because Catholics do pray a lot in, in church. They kneel at the kneeling rail in front of their pew, and they pray there through the rosary, and that's, that takes a little bit of time. Perhaps they think they'll be heard for their much praying, or that much time, that kind of dedication to a, a system of prayer surely counts with, with God. Well, it really doesn't. You feel better about it because look what you did and look how long you prayed and look how much you said. But really all you did was say the same thing over and over. You know, help me for the grace of something. Amen. And you do it again. And I'm not exaggerating. My prayer was thank you for the world so sweet. Thank you for the food we eat. Thank you for the birds. Thank, thank you, God, for everything. We said it so much that when we would often pray, it'd be my turn. And I say thank you for the thank you for the thank you for the thank you for the Amen. And we ate. My dad's, you know, the Catholic prayer was, Bless us, O Lord, in these thy gifts which we are about to receive from thy bounty through Jesus Christ, or Christ Jesus, whichever way it went. And my dad said, Bless the Lord, you bless the Lord, amen. And that's about all it meant. And there was nothing of power, there was nothing of meaning there, there was nothing, there was nothing pious or holy or, or sincere about that. It was a learned prayer. And so he tells us here, Don't be like the hypocrites are by thinking they're going to get some kind of a thing with God because they pray a long time or use a lot of words. Don't use vain repetitions because maybe people do think that if we pray this long, this much, even if it's over and over, that that counts. And I don't think it does, but they do. Another thing, and we don't major on this so much, at least not in very many places, but I think I could hear, prayer can also be vain if it's not prayed in faith. Isn't that right? Yeah. Put your finger there because I'm coming back to Matthew 6. Look in James chapter 1. James chapter 1, verse 5. 
For he said, if any man lack wisdom, let him ask, and that's prayer, ask of God. Now, James just says, who gives? Today, people say, well, he could. He has, but you don't know that he will. But James says, let him ask of God, who giveth to all men liberally, and upbraideth not. But, here's a condition that goes with prayer in the New Testament for us and anybody else who's a Christian. But let him ask in faith without wavering. Or the word waver is a word for doubt. Without wavering. For he that wavereth is like the waves of the sea that are driven and tossed this way and that way. And then he says, let not that man think, what? That he shall receive anything from God. Now, can you imagine this morning in a a good Christian setting, how popular that would be as a title for a sermon? Let not that man think he shall receive anything from God. We, we, we don't want to hear that. We're Christians. Make me feel good. Make me know I'm doing good. Make me know that I'm trying anyway. Well, amen. But why would we want any of us, why would we want to be complimented for something that wasn't right? But Christians are like that. Remember in the Old Testament, they said to Isaiah, prophesy smooth things. We don't care if it's true. Just make it sound good. Prophesy illusions. What's an illusion? It's something you make up. It's not real. doesn't have to be real. Make us think it's real. And that's what we like. That's, this is religion. This is prime time religion. Make us feel good. Make it look good. Sound good. Uh, put some oomph in it. Make, it. make it a place where this is. Oh, yeah. doesn't have to be true. Don't make me deal with my life and my heart and all of that. Don't make me have to wrestle with my emotions and my feelings or my wrongs or my rights or my thoughts. Don't make me do that. I just want to go to church to feel good about my life. And yet, one of the reasons we are here is so that we can deal with that life. All of us. And he said concerning prayer, which is the big subject in Christianity, men ought always to pray, Jesus said, the bumper sticker on the car says, the family that prays together stays together. Popular theme. Or another one is, try prayer. It might work. I mean, you might catch God on a good day and it'll work. People think like that. I mean, they, they, God has been so humanized anyway that people tend to think that way. I asked a priest one time about why they would pray to Mary. And his answer was in private, and there wasn't anybody around that would listen to it, but in private he said, well, who would have more influence with a son than his mother? See, it's very human, very, very much like you and I with our children. He said, she would have more of an influence talking to her son about needs than you would. He said, you pray to her and she influences her son. I mean, it's, it's, it's kind of a humanizing of God to make him very much like us. God once said in the Bible, said, Thou thoughtest I was altogether such a one as you are. So God isn't like that. God draws a line. And because he is considered to be righteous, he draws a line and he said, This is the way, walk ye in it. Now, if he does not judge wrong, then there was no use for that line. We let everybody off the hook. I mean, they put people in jail today for killing people, and they let them out on what is called shock probation, whatever that is. It's shocking, but they let them out on for shock probation for having destroyed some family somewhere or some mother's wife feeling and thrown him into a dark hole and full of hatred and stuff. They let them out, you know, they keep living their life. It's like, well, but God, when he says that this is the way walk in it, and he watches over his word to perform it, he also is the judge of all the earth. And, and the wonderful thing about us and God's goodness is that when we get off base, He is able. He is able to cause whatever needs to happen in your life to bring you back, even if it puts you flat on your back. The proverb said, It was good for me that I was afflicted that I might learn thy statutes. And in learning His Word, having the effect in learning of who said it and whoa, this is who you do, called the fear of God. This is what keeps us on the straight and narrow path. 
as you said again in Proverbs 3, said, through the fear of God, man departs from evil. He departs from evil. He knows better. It's too heavy a price to pay to get off base and have your pleasure at the expense of being judged. And a Christian won't do that. I ain't going to do it. But that's the difference between those who are walking with the Lord and those who aren't. But when it comes to prayer, God says, now this is, this, this is the standard. This is what I go by. This is what I judge. This is what I listen to. This is what I reject. Now, when you pray, have a view of, of me that is so, so good that there is nothing I promised you in my word that I cannot do. And you meet the conditions and I'll do it. What things soever you desire. Quote it. When you pray, believe you've got it and you should have. That's the word of God to us. Now, that's what God said. You, you do that and here I am. But he says, but when you pray, believe. Now, if you don't believe, then you're not sure. Would that be right? If I don't really have biblical believing, then I have honest uncertainty. I'm not trying to doubt. I'm, I'm where some of us are about a lot of things. I'm not trying to doubt. I'm just I'm having a, a little bit of difficulty getting this thing settled in my heart. Well, that's what wrestling is all about. Faith, what, comes? So you keep fighting. You keep wrestling. That faith will come. But he said, when you pray, believe that you have it. And you'll get it. And James goes so far to say, back to that Christians and, and vain praying so much, how we pray in desperate. Oh, God, you see how bad I want? Oh, God, you know how bad it is? Oh, God, looks. Oh, God, you can do. We know. He said, when you pray... You ask for wisdom or whatever it is. When you pray, you got to believe you have it. I got to accept the fact that God, who heard me, and He does. If He know that He hears, then we know that we have the petitions we've desired of Him. First John five. So He said, "If any man asks God for anything, let him know that if you ask, you have to believe." Now, if a man asks for something but he's not sure. And he keeps on asking for the same thing. Oh, God, it didn't work. Oh, God. And he keeps asking, repeating his prayer over and over and over because he's never really believed that God has heard him prayer and is going to do it or has done it. He keeps asking because he's never really, he's never believed. When you pray, believe you have, say, received. If you don't believe, if you're not convinced and persuaded you have not received an answer to your prayer, you will keep praying because you don't know if you're going to get it or not. And sometimes we don't think like this, but by our much prayer and much effort at our just continuous, we think that surely God will see me down here really waiting and bombarding the gates of heaven, and then maybe He will. That my much words or much effort or by sweating and, and energy, maybe God will answer our prayer. But that's not what He said. He said the prayer of faith is what works. Are you still in James, James 1? He said, if when you pray you're not sure you've got it. Let's say it's honest, honest uncertainty. So you, keep, you stay with it. You keep reading the Word. But you've got to come to the place where you believe. Because if when you pray you don't believe you got it. He said, let not that man think what? That he shall receive anything from the Lord. Now, if our prayers, us in this room, or maybe you out there in an electronic world, if all the things we pray for, if you're a parent, you know about praying for your kids and your family and your friends and your children if you're, or, or whoever. You know how important it is for, for you to see a need met and for God to minister to people. You really want that. So you put your heart in it. But it takes more than just your heart. Because when you pray, God requires us to believe not only that he heard you, but that he gave you your request. It's yours. I mean, that's the tough part because you don't feel any different. You don't look any different. You don't sound any different. Your kid didn't jump up off the bed with a miracle healing. The money still didn't come in. You still haven't heard from whoever you're praying for. Nothing changes out there. It looks the same. And the devil, the tempter comes up to destroy your faith. And he says, it ain't going to work. Who's it ever worked for? Look, you prayed, oh, you prayed this prayer of faith, this faith stuff, 
Look, it ain't no better. It ain't going to work. You're just not good enough. You got too much sin in your life. You're, you're corrupt. You're, 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 you're. And so you lose heart. You faint. And when you faint, you reap not. Remember that? So this is a war. This faith business has always been, in my life, I've been in this for 43 years. It's a war. It always is a war. There's not a time you don't have to fight hard. You can never look back and say, I win because I've come this far. It never has worked. Every day is a new, is a new day. Every threat is a new threat. Every symptom is, uh-oh, uh-oh, uh-oh. They're all new. And they're all tough. And they're all bad. And you have to fight them all. But God says, no matter how intense it is, there hath no temptation taken you. But such as is common to man, and God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tested and tempted beyond that which you're able. And he always holds us to faith. Let not that man think that he shall receive anything that he asks for, if he asks in what? Can you say waivers? Waver means doubt. Why? But what does verse 8 say? He, what is he? He's a double-minded man. And because he's double-minded, what, what else goes with that? Unstable in all of his ways? I'm not talking about being bad people. I'm not talking about being sincere people. I'm not talking about being earnest people or loving people. I'm talking about faith. I'm talking about getting a hold of what God said in His Word, bring it into your heart as a living reality, that God who spoke what He said is the one who watches over that Word to do what He said. You don't need to keep aggravating. You can't aggravate God. You're bragging if you think you can. But you don't need to think that if by much effort you get your prayers answered. It doesn't say the prayer of effort will heal the sick. It says the prayer of faith will heal the sick. It's just a simple prayer that is released by, by the assurance that what is in your heart about it, you have it. That's it. This is when you start praising God. This is where we get persecuted. We're walking around. We're still limp, still hoarse, still whatever you're going through. And people say, how are you doing? I praise the Lord. I'm doing fine. You don't look fine. I feel fine. In my, you know, I'm right here. I'm fine. Well, how can you say you feel fine when you don't look fine? Well, I don't want to go into that sermon, but that's, that's easy to answer. You know what? I'm saved not because I look saved. I'm saved not because I sound saved. I'm saved because I believe I'm saved. There's been times, I'm sure, somebody said, well, you don't look it. You don't sound it. And I say, praise God, I don't have to go by what I see or what I feel. We walk by faith and not by sight. I believe that what I have not yet seen is real because faith gives reality to things unseen in the definition of faith, Hebrews 11.1. 1. It is your faith that makes something you don't see real to you and you're living as though it is real because when it becomes real or manifests, you won't need to believe it anymore. That's the end of your faith. You got me way off on the verse 7 just to say that. But vain repetitions is a repeating of something you really haven't believed or you really don't have a heart for or you're just repeating prayers and so forth. And verse 8, God said He knows your needs before you pray. So your time in prayer is not an information, is not giving God a lot of information. Lord, you know this, and Lord, you know that, and now, Lord, I'm here. You know how hard I've been trying. Now, Lord, you know that I really mean, Lord, you know how I've been. Lord, you know how... God already knows everything there is to know about you, not only today, but everything you haven't done yet that you will do. He knows that too. He knows everything. All things that can be known, He knows it. And one of your privileges in prayer when you get down to pray is to realize that the one I'm praying to already knows what my needs are, but He holds me to asking. And He says, Put me in remembrance. Remember that Isaiah 43, 26? God says, put me in remembrance. Declare thou that you may be justified. And old Jehoshaphat, when he went into prayer with all the nation, the, the tribe of Jude and Benjamin, they were all gathered together and these armies were coming up against them. 
a million soldiers perhaps, maybe as many as came against his father Asa, I don't know, but there was such an army, a combined army of three nations coming up from down by the old Salt Sea, coming right up through there. I've been there. I can say that now. But anyway, they, they came up through there, and Jehoshaphat said, Lord, we don't know what to do. We have no power against these people. How can we fight these people? He's standing there with his wife and his children. They weren't dressed in battle array. They didn't have their swords and shields. They just came out to assemble before the Lord in a prayer meeting. Just a prayer meeting. The whole nation. And then Jehoshaphat, who was a student of the Word, and all of his people were students of the Word because they had been well taught. All the whole nation. Only time in the Bible where a whole nation was systematically taught what the Bible says. The whole bunch of them. Remember that? No enemy cared or dared to make war with them. They were all afraid. God put the fear into all those people so that no nation would make war with Jehoshaphat. He wasn't even guarding his borders. He was studying the Bible with his subjects and the teachers and all the people. So he was able to quote the Bible back to God. And he said, now, Lord, he said it about like this. Did you not give this land that we are now in to thy friend Abraham? And did he not? And, and did you not say? And though he didn't mention him by name, he said, did not Solomon, when he dedicated the temple, did he not say that if there was ever a crisis or a, a plague or a, an enemy invasion, or anything, did, he not, did, did he not say that we would come into this place and stand before you and cry out to you and you would hear us and help us? Now, didn't you say that? He's quoting back to God what God was watches over to perform. He said, now, Lord, you said this. He wasn't like a lot of Christians. Oh, God, what are we going to do? What we going to do? Well, what does the Bible say God will do? We just bypass that, see. Now, all that study, I don't like all. Well, that's what's important is to be able to tell God, quote back to God what he's promised and hold him to it. He said, ask me now. See if I won't open the windows of hell. Well, I wouldn't ask you. Ask me, he said. See if I won't. Eat this stuff. Peter and all that big net came down, all those unclean animals. He said, eat this. And, oh, no, I would never eat that. And God said, wait a minute. You're dealing with God now. When I tell you to do something, that's what you do. So Jehoshaphat said, we don't know what to do. But now you gave us the land. We're here. You told us if there was a problem to come here, here we are. And we don't know what to do, but our eyes are upon you, us and all of our families. And a man prophesied, just a man, a human being, a guy that has to bathe every day or should, but bathes often like you and I do. Anymore, I don't know if anybody does anymore, but that you should. But anyway, but a man prophesied, a human being, probably subject to, I don't know about him, with some of them, but he prophesied and he said, in effect, you don't have to fight this war. You can stand right here and watch the salvation of God on your behalf. And because they believed that, it hadn't happened yet. You can still hear the coming up south of the Cliff of Ziz. They were still coming up by the Dead Sea up in the mountain part. They were weaving away through the passes and coming up that way. And all this nation had was a prophecy by a human being. They didn't hear the voice of God. They heard the voice of a man. And a man said something. They all bowed their heads to the ground and they began to glorify God. They rose up and they praised God. The next morning they went out to meet that army and, and, and they had their best. They had their church clothes on. They were arrayed in holy attire. They went out before the Lord and, and they began to dance and shout before the Lord. And God caused them to see all three nations kill each other. They killed each other. Why did God respond to Jehoshaphat? I wonder why he doesn't respond to a lot of people today. And he doesn't. He could. They know he could, but there's not a lot of response. Why is that? Is there a problem with knowing God? Is there a problem with not understanding what God expects of us? Is a lot of men's prayer today vain? I don't know. Well, I do know, but you think about it. <clears throat> God is not difficult for us to understand. 
He has used words from His majesty on high. He has given words to us that are simple. He's called it simplicity. Ask and you shall, and then a long word, receive. Two syllables. Knock and it shall be, another long word, opened. Two syllables to you. Is there anybody that can't understand that language? No, even our children can understand that. That a loving God who brought us out of darkness into his marvelous light cares about our well-being, cares about our needs. He knows what you need before you ask him. He's not going to just meet your needs because you have needs. You have to ask, but if you ask, you have to believe. If he just met needs because you have needs, you wouldn't have to pray. But when the Bible says my people are destroyed for a lack of knowledge and God requires us to know to know him in a personal way so that we are aware of what he's promised and therefore with confidence we can come boldly to the throne of grace in time of need to obtain mercy and so forth. This is a simple life, but it's, it's a demanding life. I mean, God treats us as children, adopts us as sons, and is willing to give us the kingdom. Willing to give it to you. It's your Father's good pleasure to give the kingdom to those that ask Him. He hold back nothing from you. Delight yourself in the Lord, and He will give you the desires of your heart. People say, well, how could I believe for a new, a new car or a new house? Well, let's go one step better than a car and a house. How about a ton of solid, pure gold? A ton, I mean about that much. But I mean a, a ton of gold at today's prices. Who does the gold belong to? All the gold in all the hills belong to God. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. We are his children. The only reason God is good to this earth is because of us. And when his people are taken off of this earth, the wrath of God comes down on this earth. It does. There's nothing to commend the earth to God. That's not part of the Sermon on the Mount. That's just gotten a little preaching fit there for a moment. But the deal of it is that the one supreme thing that has to guide us through this life is the Word, but it only works if you believe it. The only thing God ever watches over to do, the only thing He's promised to do is what He has taught us in His Word, but it only works if you believe it. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the Word. If all you do is hear it, all you have is knowledge. The smartest people don't usually have the faith. It's the simple people like me and you that are able to just, well, if he said that, then praise God, I'm counting on him to do that. I'm going to live like he has. I will be persecuted for this because I'm going to be viewed as a village idiot or something. But I'm going to do this, and God's going to take care of my needs. Now, verse 9, 8 what we call the Lord's Prayer, verse 9. Let's go through some things. We, we're all familiar with this. Probably one of the first prayers we ever prayed was the Lord's Prayer. Is what it's called here. Jesus did not say, pray this prayer, but he said, after this manner, in verse 9. He said, after this manner, therefore, pray ye. These are things to think about as you pray, considering whom you're praying to. And it always begins with, my name is Jimmy Gimme. Lord, here I am. I'm here again. I have a lot of needs. Please come down and do your thing. And so I can, you know, oh God, give me, give me, give me, give me. Think of it like this. Our Father. Now, is He the Father of everybody? No. Jesus said to some, you are of your Father, the devil. So God is not the father of all mankind. But to those who have been born again and have that divine nature from God deposited within them, that essence, reality of God living inside of you, uh, Christ in you, the hope of glory... It is God in Philippians 2, for it is God who is at work in us, both to will and to do of His good pleasure. 
you have this inside of you, and, and He becomes your Heavenly Father, and He is God. It's a way of talking about your relationship to God. I have been bought with a price. I belong to God. He brought me out of the miry clay. I, I, he broke, my heart has been broken because of sin and how I've been before Him. And I asked God to save me and forgive me, and He did. And I, I'm a different man. I'm a changed woman. I'm a changed person. I can't fully describe it. It's kind of like, well, it's kind of like when the wind blows. I have no idea where the wind come from. I couldn't see it coming. And when it came, I felt it, but I don't know where it went. But I just know I was in the middle of where the wind was. And the wind touched my life. And as he said, it's that way in the, new, in the new birth. It comes and you'll know it. And when it moves, we'll all know it. Because your life is different. Your life is not an up and I don't care who you are in here tonight or out there anywhere else. If you're born again, your life is different. It's a different life than the way you used to live. You wrestle with some, some things. There are, there are weak spots in there. and There are probably some areas in your life that, that are called strongholds. But you will deal with it because God will never leave you alone. When you are born again, He's put His mark on you. You are His. And He that started a good work in you is going to complete that work. This will evolve into this relationship where you don't know much about him, but he offers to reveal himself to you. He begins to show you things, and he becomes, as the supreme ruler of all the universe, we call him the sovereign God. There are no challengers to God. God reigns and reigns supremely. And he begins to disclose himself to you that way, and you begin to see that this is who saved you. This is who loved you. This is who sought you out. This is who brought you out of the miry clay. This is who is worth giving all your life for. For this is your heavenly father. Not everybody can say he's my heavenly father. But, but those who, who can, they're the only ones whose prayer is going to work you know, anyway. So he says, we pray to him. We don't have time to talk about adoption. Spirit of adoption. But everybody that's born again is a child of God. Adoption is what transfers into sonship, making us entitled to all the benefits of being his son. Our inheritance, power, freedoms, what things ever you desire when you pray and that type of thing, delight yourself in the Lord. Those promises aren't made aimlessly or to the world. They're made only to God's people. And they're all in Christ. All the promises and so forth are in, are in Christ. So you come to him as Father. Father, God who loves you, cares for you, has assigned himself to take care of you, and is doing a work in you so that you begin to see who he is. Because the second thing he says, our Father who art in heaven. Heaven is called the abode of God. But God is not somewhere out there distant from us because God is omnipresent. Now, we talk of heaven because heaven is the vastness of what we see. When we look at in the sky, it's so vast that the headiest minds and the greatest inventions cannot fathom all of it. They can express opinions about it, but it's so vast. God is everywhere. God doesn't have to go anywhere to be there. He is always there. You're never alone because while he is there and we see him as a God of heaven or one who dwells in that secret place of, of Elyon, the Most High God, while he is there, he is also in a closet with you, personally and privately attending into your prayer, able to listen to every believer's prayer anywhere in the world. What about everybody? Don't say that God hears not sinners. We're talking about those that have been born again, who have the privilege of Him as their Father listening to what they ask for. And the Father who wants to take care of you and supply your needs and comfort you and guide your life, guide your steps. That's who He is, and that's the way we see Him. Jesus called Him in John 17 in the prayer. He called Him, O righteous Father, because He always does right. Isn't that true? God always does right. Well, what about all the bad things that happen? God is never wrong in judgment. 
Never is God's verdict against sin or against evil ever wrong. And when people persist in evil and will not turn to God, then the just recompense of their reward is what comes upon them. No man will ever charge God with being unrighteous or unreasonable. Never and ever. We have 24 hours every day in this life. We can make wrongs right. You get a chance tonight to hear about things. You get a chance to listen. God's given you a free country to listen in. He's given you time to listen in. Nobody in here is flat broke. You think you are, but you're not. And God has offered to you himself and all of his resources of heaven and all the healing and the deliverance and the peace and the joy, everything that is of God, he gives to you. And he is the one who fills all in all. And when we pray, we, you know, your prayer, while we don't have to do our prayer every day like that and begin to get in a vain mode about repeating the same words every morning or every day you pray, uh, you begin to realize that this is who I'm praying to. Anybody that big would have no problem responding to me because in light of everything that is, I'm not big enough to even be seen under the best microscope. I couldn't be seen. And yet God, of all of that, comes down to this area, to this abode where I am, and listens to me. He said, Thy kingdom come. Next, he said in verse 10, Thy kingdom come. That's what this is all about. The word kingdom means reign. A kingdom is where a king rules or somebody of power reigns. And the reigning king of all the earth will be Jesus Christ. He came as a lamb. He'll come back as a lion. And when he has subdued all kingdoms and put all things under his feet and it's all done, it's all over, then his kingdom will be an eternal kingdom, probably in the New Jerusalem. I don't know all the details about the end. I just know that it's a wonderful place. How could you not see the New Jerusalem come down out of heaven? It says the heavens will melt. Everything out there that took a spoken word to create apparently will all disappear. They'll all be burned, gone away. And the only thing that'll be is a city. It'll just be a city. 1,500 miles up and down. Our best rockets only go, what, two or 300 miles up? Our spaceship? going this high, and our city is so much further than that. And we can go from any of it to any of it. I suspect in a blink of an eye that everything around this city is what is called outer darkness because it's all gone. Nothing but darkness, thick darkness. Everybody can see the city and the peace of the people in it, but nobody in the city can see that out there. I imagine they will see you. But you won't see them. That would be uncomfortable for you and to make you happy. But there'll be always be this thing, I think, in outer darkness. You know, if we had just paid the price, if we had just listened, if we had just paid the price, if we had just put our hand to that plow. Man, if I had known I was going to die the next day, I would have, man, I would have crawled over glass to get to Jesus. But man, it's so busy, so much stuff going on. And they'll see out there in all eternity what God has prepared for man. I think it's going to be a wonderful place to live. I really do. That's just my view of that. I don't know all the details about the New Jerusalem. I know the Bible speaks of it. It speaks of it in a, in a time of eternity. And I think it will be more than you ever could imagine. Because I have not seen or ear heard, mind conceived the things that God has prepared for church members for those who love him, for those who love him. That's what he said. But this kingdom is coming, and it means to reign. And then the other thing, it says, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's the desire of every Christian. God, if you could just reign on this earth, all this meanness would be gone, and all the misery and all the junk that people are just going crazy over, but all, if you would just reign and rule and stop it, and that your will would be done on this earth, that every person, every home would desire and seek after to do the will of God, would that not bring peace? If we were doing the will of God on this earth, would it, would it bring peace to us? 
Why wouldn't it? There would be no reason for judgment. It opens the door to blessing. I mean, all you have to do is, is find out what his will is and then be willing to do it. And he said, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now, verse 11, Jesus said, and this is something else you pray, give us this day our daily bread. Well, that would be your food, no, no doubt, and perhaps any need that you might have. But specifically, your daily food. And look how many people don't have that. We hear the word poverty a lot. I'm just about three thousandths of an inch on preaching on poverty, a spirit of poverty. Because it is a spirit, and it's just killing people. Not just necessarily poverty of money, but a poverty of so many things. But especially here, in this case, money. But look at people who are in poverty. Some of you, they come back from countries where they don't know the Lord. They know a system of worship that has put them under a curse. They don't know how to receive from God except to beg. And they don't have enough to eat. You can send them a lot of food, and that's a good thing to do because we care. But they'll continue to be hungry and in poverty until their heart's changed. They will. One of the things that we do when we pray, Lord, I thank you for my daily bread in the morning. I just can't think of anything better. I just can't imagine anything better than a good-sized bowl full of uh, real good cereal, three or four different kinds mixed together, shaken up, and you get all of that with a bunch of blueberries poured all in there. It keeps the milk real cold, and it's just so good. Now, look at that. I do. Every morning I, I do. I say, I thank you, Lord, for my daily food. Thank you, Lord, for this food. Then I say, thank you for my salvation. Those two go together. My food, my salvation. But he says, this is what we pray. We give thanks for our food. We pray before we eat that hamburger. And you should. <laughs> you pray before you drink your diet pop, which you shouldn't. But if, you, if you're going to drink it, make sure you know how to pray and, and pray. <laughs> well, God can't keep you from, from the evil effects of that stuff long term. No, I don't have a food spirit either because I'll eat a sausage egg biscuit every now and then. They're still good. But verse 12, and we'll spend the rest of our night here, a little bit of time we have left here on verse 12. He said, our daily bit, and forgive us our trespasses or our debts as we forgive our debtors or those who trespass against us. Luke 11 and verse 4, where he quotes this prayer, he uses sins, forgive us of our sins. He's talking about our transgressions. It is common knowledge to all of us that we are all capable of sinning. We should not sin. Jesus told one woman in the Bible, go and sin no more. So it's not like you just have to sin to be normal. Because you have somebody with you that if you stay in touch and walk, close, then you'll walk above it. In Romans 6, 14, it says, sin shall not have dominion over you. You should be able to quit doing stuff you used to allow yourself to do. But anyway, we do sin on occasion. Whether it's an attitude, a word, a traffic light hollering at people that cannot drive. They cannot drive. They just don't know how to drive. We're often convicted that what we just said but what we just did is wrong. I should not have done that, said that, read that, looked at that, wore that. Could that be a sin? Can you wear the wrong thing? If I came to church tonight in a very expensive bathing suit, <laughs> would that be wrong? Would it be wrong? <laughs> Don't... <laughs> I think it would be real wrong. <laughs> Women screaming, babies crying. I think it would be really wrong. <laughs> I came to you like that. Oh, my. But he says, when you pray, when you pray, forgive. Now, what does that mean? I know you know what it means, but allow me. And when you stand praying, Forgive. Look at verse 14 and 15. For right after he teaches them the Lord's Prayer, as we call it, 
then he details what he said in one verse with two more verses. He takes verse 12 and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Just a short sentence. But then he, as I said, details it in verses 14 and 15 by saying this. When it comes to prayer, you must, I say you absolutely have to be here. He said, for if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. What is the condition that God holds you to for being forgiven? Forgiveness. Forgiving others. But, verse 15, if you forgive not men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. What do you make out of that? Did Jesus say that if you will not forgive others for whatever they've done, if you won't forgive them, he won't forgive you? Then what does that mean? you got a penalty around your neck, don't you? I don't know how far to go with this. Theologically, I mean. It's not easy to deal with. But Jesus said, this part is very, very simple. You, you must forgive others even as you want God to forgive you. Now, if you will not forgive other people, God will not forgive you. And if you have sin in your life, I don't care how much you pray, I don't care where you go to pray, or who's on your prayer list, or whose list you're on. If you have unforgiveness in your heart against anybody, God will not hear you, nor forgive you. Now, turn to Mark 11 for just a moment. Mark 11 and verse 24. You've probably been there at least once or twice in your life. Mark 11 and verse 24. You know this one. What things soever you desire when you pray, believe, and so forth. Now, verse 25. Right after he teaches that, he says, And when you stand praying or sit or lie down or roll across the yard, whatever you're doing, but you're praying, and when you stand praying, he said, Forgive. If you have aught against any, that your Father also which is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. But if you will not forgive, neither will your Father in heaven forgive you your trespasses. Now, what in the world could keep a person from not forgiving somebody? What would have to happen in your life for you to hold out against that person the rest of your life? You get sued? Somebody took advantage of you? Somebody killed somebody? A drunk driver? Or maybe it was a divorce court. And he said and she said and the accusations and the lies and the innuendos and the bitterness that comes out of that. Would not a root of bitterness also include unforgiveness? You just have this hateful feeling about somebody? God had every right in the world to have the same feelings about us. Look at how we lived before the Lord brought us out of the miry clay. I don't know about you. I can only talk about how miserable and pitiful I was. Why would God want to save somebody like me? I could say you, but I don't know how bad you lived. The Apostle Paul said, I was a chief of sinners. Oh, not you. You wrote half the New Testament. I was the chief of sinners. I am the least of the apostles. What kind of person would say that? The man who wrote half the New Testament, who saw himself as God said he was. And yet God, the day God saved Paul, he was on his way to Damascus to catch Christians praying, drag them out and have some of them killed. Their lives were lost because of the actions of the Apostle Paul. He had done that. That was his testimony. He killed people. And God saved a guy like that when everybody hated him. I hope he gets what he's coming. He calls my dad or my brother. He drug him out of the house and the soldiers killed Oh, I hope he burns in hell. And then that's the very guy that one day God saved. And all that rotten stuff in his life was lifted off of him. He spent years alone in the desert learning. And thank God for the, all that God did with him because we're learning from what God showed him. But could you forgive him? 
if somebody harmed one of your children and caused them to be impaired forever, would you forgive the person who did it? What about the home over in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, the Amish school, when the man came in, lined them up and killed, what, six of them? And you know what the Amish folks did? They all forgave him. We have not the right or the luxury to bear unforgiveness against our fellow man. Could you do that? Now see how quiet it is because maybe, maybe you do, maybe you haven't, maybe you should. Think about things like this. How, how bad a deed can be done against us that we will hold that against somebody? I mean, in our minds and in our hearts. Sometimes you, we know that people do because of gossip. When we repeat a story about a wrong, you've never forgiven somebody. Yeah, well, you know, and then you tell it again. You tell it again. I know in cases of divorce, the wrong that was done either the husband or the, or the wife was never forgotten and they couldn't let go of it. They could not forgive that person for the damage they did to their mind and their well-being. I mean, they just, they did them wrong, but they can't forgive. Can they be forgiven? Only under the condition of what? That they forgive. For Jesus said clearly, more than once, if you cannot forgive, your heavenly Father will not forgive you. Matthew 18. They said to Jesus, how oft shall I forgive my brother? In verse 21, how oft should I forgive somebody? Seven times. He said, till seven times seven. And then he gives them a story about a man. He said, this is what it's like. A man owed a man another a lot of money. And in verse 25, he didn't have enough to pay him. He couldn't. So the Lord commanded him that he be put in prison to be sold and his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. I don't know how he got himself in such a bind, but a lot of people do. And they can't get out of it. This guy couldn't either because the debt was way over his head. Let's say a million dollars. And then the Bible says, that same man, that servant, therefore fell down before him, worshiped him, saying, Lord, have patience with me, and I'll, I'll pay it all. I doubt if he could, but he was willing to dedicate his life to getting that bill paid because his family meant more to him than, than whatever. You know what he said? And the Lord of that servant was moved with compassion, verse 27, and loosed him, and he forgave the doer. Now, would God do that for you? Let me ask you all a question. Would God have compassion on us? to forgive us whatever we have done if we truly repent. Amen. I don't care how bad you were, how evil you were, all the God jokes you told and all the terrible words you used in the name of the Lord. I mean, just terrible. And how many times you did people wrong and you ugly and the drinking and the carousing and the damage you did and the vulgar life you live, and yet... One day he saved you, broke your miserable heart, and had mercy on you. Because grace came, mercy made application of the grace, and your heart was broken for godly sorrow, brings repentance you'll never be sorry of, that you'll never repent of. And he raised you up out of that miserable place you were, you worthless thing. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a pretty good old boy like me. No, wretch. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. And so this guy, he went away forgiven and released from his debt. That's what forgiveness is. Now, that same fellow, and you know the story, his fellow man owed him $10. Hey, you owe me $10. I want it now. I need it right now. Come on, man. I got to have it right now. I don't have it. We'll put him in jail. And so when they heard about it, the verse 34 said, And his Lord was wroth. You got to like that word, wroth. Angry will still be okay or mad. And the Lord was angry. And what did his Lord do with him? Read it. Just read verse 30 34. Jesus is speaking because it says red letter here. In this illustration of forgiveness, which began in verse 21, he said, And his Lord was angry and delivered him to the tormentors till he should pay all that was due him. 
And remember back in in verse 25, he didn't have anything to pay. He couldn't pay it. But he's delivered back to the same tormentors. Now here's the story. Here's what this is all about. Verse 35. And we'll do this in close. This is the whole point of the story. So likewise. What does that mean? That's the way you study. You ask yourself, what does this mean? So likewise. Does that mean in comparison to what you just saw as it was then, so likewise, in the same way, will my Father do to you? All right, let's see what he says. So likewise shall my heavenly Father do also unto you, if you, from your hearts, forgive not every one his brother their trespasses. Let me leave this. It's not just mouthing the words, I'm sorry, I forgive you. But he said, from his heart. It has to be the heart. I may want to escape from jail or escape a prison sentence. I'll say anything. But when it comes before God, God knows whether I, what I'm saying is genuine or not. And sometimes one of the hardest things to do is to go to somebody that you, you have learned to hate or come to hate or somebody that did you wrong or somebody that lied about you and look them in the face or call them up and say, I have been terribly wrong. I ask for your forgiveness. And that's, I mean, how hard is that? You know how settlement ever happens in a home between a husband and a wife? It happens with some people out in the world. How many kids have been offended by school teachers or an ex-boyfriend or ex-girlfriend really did wrong and scarred in some way, taken advantage of or violated? You were used like a glass of water. And you just, and the rumor they start about you, you're on Facebook, everybody hears about this and about your little escapade and what went on the other night over there and around this one or that one. And we heard about that. I hear a lot of things myself. I dream a lot. I you know, just stuff I dream about. And you think. Will you be scarred the rest of your life or will you release that person from bondage to you? Will you bring your gift to the altar and there remember that you have awed against somebody and say it wouldn't do you good to pray because you've got this problem? You've got to get rid of it. Could you go to somebody you've offended? As I shared before, I hated my mother. After my parents' divorce, I thought I did. And a lady told me one night, never met her in my life, never seen her before, never met her, came up to me and he said, the Lord showed me something about you. And I thought, oh, brother. She said, you have resentment against your mother. And the moment you said that, something in my heart went, you're caught. He said, you need to go home and tell her you forgive her. Oh, no, if I can do this. Uh, you know, I, I don't think I'm good at this. I, I, I don't think I'm ready for this. Maybe I should put this on that proverbial shelf. I thought this will be the end of my, my walk with the Lord. This is where it stops. I made it a couple months. This is as far as it goes. Because if I let my unforgiveness stand in my way, then the person before me who doesn't even know that I have a problem with them becomes a great stone, an obstacle, and I can't get over it, I can't go around it, I can't dig under it. This is as far as this is the end of my trail. Unless I go to them and say, I forgive you, and I am sorry for harboring such feelings. And I did. My mother cried, I think I cried, but it lifted off. It went away. And you've got to examine your own hearts. I don't know who's in your life. Who's, maybe they're dead. Maybe they're gone. Maybe somebody that did you in was done wrong or they're dead and gone. You still have to forgive them. And in closing, let me say this. There's a whole lot of people in the church that need to forgive God. Because they really do blame Him for not getting an answer, not getting a result. They don't see themselves as not having met conditions or being out of the realm of faith or something, just that God could have and, and, and he didn't. 
and I'm not going to church. Well, if that's the way he's going to do it, I'm not going to church anymore. Well, I don't need that. You know, he, he doesn't care about me. Your problem might be resentment against God. Maybe you need to bow your knee before the Lord and say, God, I am sorry for the feelings I've had even about you. I am a miserable wretch. At least you're honest now. You're located. You got nothing to hide anymore. Get your feelings out and you can be delivered. Amen. Bow your head with me. Father, in the name of Jesus, we thank you tonight for your word. We thank you for your truth. We thank you for light. We thank you for that work of your spirit where you give revelation to us, not only about our tomorrows, but about our lives, about our weaknesses and faults and faults and failures. And I ask you to continue to deal with us and lead us. We want to live in your kingdom. We really do want to be a vital part of your work on this earth. Not just say we are, but to truly be a part of it. To have a heart for you. To seek that secret place. To have that relationship that changes our lives forever. We know that you're speaking to us. We know that we've heard many times the things you've said. We've read much of what you've said. We ask now that the Holy Spirit would work overtime and make an application of this word to our life and our convictions and our conscience. And we'll give you thanks because we will come forth. We will come forth as pure gold. And we will be refined and cleansed because you'll do the work. You said you would, and we want it done. And we thank you for the day of its arrival in Jesus' name. Amen, amen, amen. Well, stand to your feet. Anybody have any special needs tonight before we, before we leave? Anybody we can pray for? We've been talking about it. You ought to be ready now. Or you might say, I don't know now if I'm ready or not. Well, good. Go home and get ready. Amen. Well, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and give you peace. May the Lord direct all your affairs in a way that it pleases him and honors him. And may when you pray, your heart embrace the truth, and may the truth set you free.